Nancy West is a local reporter in New Hampshire. She's been at it a long time, more than 30 years. And she's got a reputation. Blunt, curmudgeonly, insistent. Yeah, some places you don't want to drop my name. But that... <laughs> Actually, there's a lot of places. Don't drop my name. All right. You know, this... I have more questions, so please don't end the press conference. Nancy, uh, do we have time for one more question? At press conferences, Nancy has a way of raising the temperature in the room. I don't know, Nancy, because we have not been able... Can I finish? No, let me finish. When Nancy starts in on something, well, she may never stop. And that definitely goes for her coverage of cops. Once you do one story about a police officer who's done something wrong, then you get about 10 tips on another police officer. So you sort of develop some expertise in that area. Back in 2006, Nancy worked for the state's biggest paper, the Union Leader. One day, she gets one of those tips. And it's a good one. It's a really good one. The tip was about a lawsuit between two sets of cops. The state troopers believed that the highway patrol had made illegal websites. Illegal websites. No, really. The websites were the culmination of a long-running spat between two state police agencies. The public had no idea about any of it. Today, there's just one state police agency in New Hampshire, but back then there were two, the state troopers and the highway patrol officers. Both patrolled the state's highways, and neither side seemed to like that very much. Oh, there was a lot of animosity. The stories from this rivalry, they all have a schoolyard vibe to them. State troopers were accused of sabotaging highway patrol speed traps. They'd allegedly drive further up the road and turn their lights on to get drivers to slow down before hitting the trap. I can remember being, you know, laugh out loud shocked at some of them. There were stories of troopers and patrol officers arguing over traffic stops on the side of the highway. According to one patrol officer, a state trooper yelled at him, quote, This is my patrol, and you're pissing on my boots. It was a real look at the underbelly of some real trouble between these two agencies. Eventually, the pettiness moved online. The Union for the Highway Patrol created a website that was just one letter different from the State Trooper Union website. NHtroopers.org versus NHtrooper.org, no S. The State Troopers Union sued. They said the website was interfering with their fundraising abilities. And the legal back and forth brought out all those other allegations. And that's the story that Nancy broke. The union leader, her newspaper, went with the headline, Feuding Forces. But there was something else in the lawsuit that really caught Nancy's eye. Something that would come to define her career as a journalist in New Hampshire. At the time, I did not realize what an important story it was. Buried in some of the legal filings for this case, Nancy found a transcript of testimony given by the woman who ran the highway patrol. In the testimony, she made a strange allegation about the other side, with a term that Nancy had never heard before. The head of the state troopers union, in her opinion, shouldn't testify if this civil lawsuit went to trial 
because he had a lorry issue. A lorry issue. At the time, Nancy didn't know what that term meant. It's possible no one outside the legal community in New Hampshire did. But she could tell it had something to do with whether that state trooper could be trusted to tell the truth. Well, the word Lori didn't send my reporter interest tingling. But the fact that somebody was calling a top state trooper a liar or a potential liar uh, made me very curious about what the heck is a Lori issue. Nancy started in on figuring that out. She talked to attorneys and law professors and dug up old case files. And she learned that a lorry issue was a kind of black mark for police officers. If a cop had one, it meant that somewhere, sometime, something happened that could be used to call their credibility into question during a trial. And I was very startled to find out that a police officer could have dishonest behavior already in his discipline file and still work as a police officer. This startled me. But that wasn't all she found out. Nancy also got the scoop of a lifetime. She learned that for years, government lawyers had kept track of all these officers. They had a list, a secret list, of cops whose trustworthiness was in question. Nancy couldn't believe it. When I started asking questions about the list, I actually had a county attorney say, I can't talk about that. I can't even, I can't talk about that. That's secret. Now, as a reporter, you know, you hear the word, can't talk, (laughs) it's a secret. It's like, that's all I wanted to work on. The story about shenanigans between two sets of cops was suddenly so much more than that. Nancy wanted to know, And she thought you might like to know, who is on that list? There was a secret list of dishonest police officers, and the public had no clue. And they had a right to know. There are lists like this all across the country. Lists that could help you decide whether you should trust the police, even whether you should trust individual cops. These are the different reasons people were put on the list falsifying reports or records, issuance of unlawful orders, obedience to laws and policies. The only problem is, there's a good chance you're not allowed to see those lists. We're talking about police officers who carry a gun and a badge and who have the right to arrest us. It's a special trust. To turn a blind eye is basically saying, well, I hope the justice system works. That's not good enough for me. Why do these secret lists exist? And what have they done to the way you think about police? Just because someone's on the list doesn't mean they did something wrong. Everybody's wanted the Lori list. That's sort of like the holy grail. Once you know there's a secret, all those blacked out marks, you know, we want to see what's underneath those. From the document team at New Hampshire Public Radio, this is The List. I'm Jason Moon. Hey, it's Jason Moon. The List was reported and produced by a new team here at New Hampshire Public Radio called Document. 
And I am so lucky to be a part of this team because we get to make the kind of radio journalism that I've loved since I was a kid. Long-form, enterprise, investigative, just good stories that really matter, like this one. And we think this kind of reporting is critical to being an informed citizen, especially now. But sadly, it is not free. If you want NHPR to make more work like this, consider making a donation to the station. The amount is up to you, but every contribution really makes a difference. You can find a link to donate in the show notes or go to our website, nhpr.org document. If you were accused of killing someone in the late 1980s in New Hampshire, chances are Jim Moyer would be your lawyer. In those days, Jim was part of a team of just three public defenders who handled homicide cases for the whole state. There's rarely more than two dozen murders a year in New Hampshire. Jim wears glasses and has the air of a professor. He's steady, like he'd be the last person to panic if the room caught on fire. And Jim tries to extend that calm to the people he represents. People who often have good reasons to be a little freaked out. With my clients, I always tell them, you know, by the time the prosecutor's done with his opening statement, you're going to wish you took that plea, which is always true because they're giving their best case. Jim's job as one of the only public defenders for homicide cases put him at the center of some of the state's biggest news stories during that time, including the case that gave the Lori List its name. The case began in 1989 with the murder of 61-year-old Lucian Fogg. He was a roofer who lived on a secluded property in the town of Franklin, New Hampshire. He had a hunch in his back, and he had a cane. Lucian Fogg had been beaten, strangled, and stabbed 10 times. His body was found buried in some leaves in the woods on his property. This is one of the first cases where the police department actually used video on the scene. I was like, okay, they, they found the body, and they walk up with the video camera and say, there's the body. The man charged with the murder, Jim's newest client, was Carl Laurie. Here's how police say it went down. On April 14, 1989, Lucian Fogg came home to find Carl Laurie, who he knew, rummaging through the cabinets in his kitchen. Lucian yelled at Carl, then tried to push him out of his house. But Carl, who was a good 20 years younger, pushed back. They struggled. Carl fell against the wood stove and burned his arm. Lucian went for the phone to dial 911, but before he could, Carl grabbed the base of the phone and hit him in the head. He then strangled Lucian and stabbed him with a knife from the kitchen. Afterwards, according to police, Carl Laurie put Lucian Fogg's body into the bed of Lucian's pickup truck and drove him a little ways up the dead-end road that runs by his house. Carl put the body in the woods, covered it with some leaves, and left in the pickup truck of the man he just killed. The next week, the Meals on Wheels volunteer, who was used to being greeted by Lucian Fogg in his driveway when he made deliveries, noticed that the food he'd been dropping off wasn't being eaten. By the third day, he called the police. About a week or so later, police bring in Carl Laurie for questioning. Witnesses had seen him in Lucian Fogg's truck the night police believed he was murdered. Carl Laurie was known for being quiet and by his own admission for his drinking problem. He had a thick black beard and mustache, his eyes sunken and a little sad. His nickname, Butch, 
was tattooed across his fist. Police interrogated Carl Lorre for six long hours. The interrogation was full of all the things you'd expect from watching TV. Even a good cop, bad cop moment where one officer shouts that he's sick of playing games and storms out, while the other one gets in real close and pats Carl on the leg and says he can tell by his face that he wants to come clean. Carl denies everything. He says he was staying at a friend's house the night of the murder. He knew Lucian and says he might have been in his truck, but can't remember much because he'd blacked out from heavy drinking. At the end of the six hours, police arrest Carl, and he spends the night in county jail. After a few hours' sleep, he was interrogated again. The police chief uses Carl's nickname. He says, you didn't mean to do it, did you, Butch? According to police, Carl breaks down in tears and confesses. Later, as an officer booked him for the murder, Carl said, I'm sorry it happened. I didn't mean to hurt Lucian. Remember how Jim Moyer said most people will wish they had taken a plea deal after the prosecution lays out their side of things? The case against Carl Lorre did seem strong. But Jim, he wasn't so impressed. Jim argued at trial that Carl's confession was coerced. Six hours of the cops wearing Carl down, of feeding him details about the crime, of threatening him with a first-degree murder charge, of saying he would get off easier if he showed remorse. In a lot of Jim's defense, it got back to this idea, that the police did a sloppy, improper investigation. But it wasn't just Jim who said that. The prosecution was also concerned that the cops botched the investigation. One of the best pieces of evidence for Carl Lorre was a police report written by a Franklin police officer around the time the first call came in that Lucian was missing. In the report, the officer said he drove over to Lucian's to see if he was there. When he arrived, he looked up the driveway and saw Lucian. They waved to each other, and he left. Now, this police report was a real problem for the prosecution because in their theory of the case... Lucian Fogg was already murdered by the time this police officer says he saw him from the bottom of his driveway. To deal with this, prosecutors took that police officer for a ride. They actually put him in the backseat of their car, and they drive out, and they bring him to the driveway and say, hey, can you see his house from here? No, I can't. So you didn't see him, did you? No, I didn't. So they said, fine, write up a report. And so he wrote up a new report saying I was wrong about what I saw. I never really saw Lucian Falk. Prosecutors said at trial that the officer's conduct was, quote, disgraceful. And so jurors heard from the defense that some cops badgered Carl Lorre into a false confession. And they heard from prosecutors that a different cop told a, quote, lazy lie when he said he had checked in on Lucian Fogg. In one way or another, the jury's decision would hinge on questions of police credibility. The Carl Lorre case was, in my career, the longest jury deliberation I've ever been through. I believe, if I remember, it was four days, which is really long. And during that time, we can't leave the courthouse. So the jury's there from nine till four, and we're there from nine to four, wait for the next day, nine to four, 
On the fourth day, the jury announced it was deadlocked. The judge told them to keep going. Then a verdict. And they came back and they did reach a verdict, which was guilty on first-degree murder. And first-degree murder, you know, you bring him back into the courtroom, they say first-degree murder, the judge sends him to life without parole, and that's that, and you walk out the door. We go down to the cell block downstairs and just talk for a little while. I mean, there's very little to say at that point. Um, I remember Carl being very gracious, though, and thanking us for doing, you know, everything we could. That was the last time Jim Moyer and Carl Laurie spoke in person. For Jim, it was on to the next homicide case. For Carl, it was off to state prison. But then something happens that will keep the Carl Laurie case in Jim's life for the rest of his career. He said, hey, did you hear about Steve Laro? I said, no. He said, oh, well, there's lots of stuff about Steve Laro that you need to find out about. That's on the next episode of The List. The List was created by the Document Team at New Hampshire Public Radio. It was reported, written, and mixed by me, Jason Moon. Lauren Chuljan is Document's senior producer. Document is edited by Dan Barrick. Additional editing help from Erica Janik, Maureen McMurray, Mary McIntyre, and Todd Bookman. Original artwork for the series was created by Sarah Plord. She also manages the digital presence of the Document team. And HPR's director of audience is Rebecca Lavoie. Part two of The List is available right now.